Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 26 through 43. And as is tradition from early church days, would you please stand during the Gospel reading? Luke 23, verses 26 through 43. Hear the word of the Lord. As they led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and they put the cross on him, and they made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are a lot of things that are happening in the world today that are Irritating and frustrating to me. Not the least of which is all this stuff that's going on with with the the bonus payments at AIG. I I have to tell you, that really gets to me. To think that the very people who have so much to do with this with helping this economic meltdown are getting paid these exorbitant bonuses. And it's being given to them with our tax dollars. While all the while, so many people are losing their jobs and their homes. Philanthropic enterprises are struggling to survive. People who were counting on pension and investments have little left. Some have nothing left. But it's not just irritating me. I'm at the point with some of these things where I'm ready to say, all right, let's get some revenge on these people. 
I hope that doesn't make you think less of me. Just remind you that I got a long ways to go on my journey like most of us. I'm looking for some retribution of people. Hold them accountable for what they've done. And I'm ready, thank you. And I'm ready to, yeah. You know, we're, we're, it's, it's time to do something. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that the people who could make changes either don't want to or don't feel like they can. And, and you sort of fall back and you say, what can we possibly do? And you come to the point where you begin to think that the only way anything of this mess and the way the world operates, if anything's going to change, someone is going to have to do something pretty drastic. And that's a little bit frightening to me. But I wonder if there isn't something of that mindset that you just can't sit around, you've got to do something drastic. I wonder if something of that mindset isn't in the thought patterns of these two guys who are crucified on the right and the left of Jesus. Now, Luke calls them criminals. Matthew and Mark call them thieves. Both of those words have the connotation of, of illegal activity but really at the forefront of the legal activity seems to be acts of violence. When you, when you read about these descriptions, you don't get the feeling that they are just common criminals. They're not, the, they're not just pickpockets or, or people that might, you know, might see an open door and go in and, and take a few valuables. These are people who have bigger things in mind. And of course, Rome wouldn't typically execute common criminals. And pickpockets. But Rome would execute insurrectionists, political revolutionists. And crucifixion is one of Rome's favorite ways of sending a message to people who are thinking about undermining the government, thinking about starting up acts of sedition against the government. with Jerusalem teeming with pilgrims. Many of them, a number of them, thinking about how, what they can do to change things. Rome puts these two guys on crosses to send a clear message. We don't ignore people that try to take over the government. I suspect that of all the people who are around the cross watching Jesus die, we might identify the least with these two criminals. But let's not rush to judgment too quickly. Maybe maybe we're not as unlike them as we might think. Think for a moment about this first criminal that Luke describes, this first insurrectionist. Verse 39 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
The word hurled insults is a form of the word that is typically translated blasphemy. Now, we tend to think of blasphemy as saying something, saying something bad, swearing against God. And, and that certainly is part of it. But it's more than that. Blasphemy is closely connected to slander. And slander is the strongest expression of personal defamation against someone. The word slander implies malicious, false, defamatory statements about another person. When we slander, we undermine what is true. We bring disgrace upon a person. We discredit someone's reputation and character, even though we have no right to. We claim, either by words or by actions, that someone is not what they say they are. And here is this criminal blaspheming Jesus, hurling insults at him. You're the Christ? Really? I don't think so. And in the spiritual sense, blasphemy is a false representation of God. Spreading false ideas, casting doubt about the authority and the character of God. If you're really God, do something about it. You sense in those words the, the bitter, blasphemous, sarcastic, slanderous tone. Now, we don't know why this guy is says what he does to Jesus. He uses his dying breaths to hurl insults at him. Maybe it's because of his excruciating pain. I can kind of understand that. Maybe he's trying to force Jesus' hand to do something drastic like he was hoping to do. I wonder if, if it isn't Jesus' words of love and forgiveness that pushes him over the edge. He hears Jesus Talk about forgiving these people. And he sees that as a sign of weakness. It repulses him to think of letting these people off the hook. See, he knows what Jesus doesn't know. He understands what Jesus doesn't understand. Love doesn't change anything. Power changes things. And you do whatever you have to do to get power. So you can change it. Talking about forgiveness isn't going to do anything. How can you forgive these people for what they've done to us and to so many others? How can you forgive these people when they've sold us out for their own gain? Bitterness and hate have overtaken him. We've seen it many times. Maybe it's it's something even that you're struggling with. Adversity strikes, injustice deals you a blow, people hurt you. Instead of trying to find a way out, you you blame God. You let bitterness toward God take root in your heart. And eventually, like this criminal, you reject God. And the world is filled with people who, because of pain and heartache, have decided to reject God. What we don't realize is that in rejecting God, rejecting Christ, we are, we are pushing ourselves away from the one who can do anything about the pain and the struggle that we're feeling. We're turning our backs. We're rejecting the only one 
who can give us peace in the midst of all the turmoil. And it's tragic. But that isn't the only way we blaspheme God. We're usually more subtle. Probably a bit blind to the truth about ourselves. We need to be honest. In some form or another, all of us are insurrectionists. Maybe not against the government, but certainly against God. Because of our sinful nature, because of our selfish choices, we who make claims to follow Christ don't always represent him as we should to others in the world. We get selfish and self-centered and driven by our own personal agenda. And the message we send to people is a misrepresentation of who God is. Our lives blaspheme and slander God when we claim to believe what Jesus teaches and yet live as though we've never heard anything Jesus teaches. Our lives blaspheme and slander God when we say we're filled with the Spirit, but yet people watching us are pretty sure we're more concerned about the things of the flesh. We blaspheme and We slander God when we say that God is great and powerful, and yet we have no faith to believe that God can change the world or change us or change others. When we say that God is love and then teach about Jesus in a way in which he isn't. When we say that God is more important than material possessions, yet we can't bring ourselves to be generous with what we have to people in need. Our lives blaspheme God when we say that God answers prayer. And yet we pray so little. We worry so much. Blasphemy for most of us isn't going to be so much swearing against God as it is skewing the character of God. Slandering the reputation of God. Misrepresenting God to other people, particularly to people who do not yet have a relationship with God. In his book, Changing the World Through Kindness, Steve Sogren says that uh, not long after his family moved to California, he and his wife realized that they were sort of in the middle of a dispute between two of their neighbors. One neighbor was a, was a, a, a constant churchgoer, and the other neighbor was not a believer at all. Steve said he knew that this conflict was escalating one day when his neighbor came over. Both of them were working in the yard, and his neighbor came over to Steve, and he said, hey, you're a pastor, aren't you? He's like, yeah. <laughs> and he began to, to recite this litany of disagreements and, and issues that had arisen, most of them very small and petty between his two neighbors. And then he said to Steve, but you know, this most recent problem takes the cake. We got a letter from that guy's lawyer threatening to sue us if we didn't trim the tree in our yard that borders his yard. What I don't understand is why he didn't just come to me and say, hey, could you trim that tree? Why do you have to go to a lawyer? And then the neighbor winked at Steve and said, you know, I was just about ready 
to trim that tree. But now I'm not going to do anything until I have to. And he said, I am more than happy to go to court so that I can have a story to tell my friends about how a Christian sued me over an orange tree. And then he summarized all of his feelings in this haunting statement. I guess sometimes Christians love us, but they don't like us very much. What do you think that man's opinion of God is? Paul writes to the Romans in the second chapter of his letter and says, you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind and a light for people who are living in darkness? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you don't follow it. And then he says, no wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. We blaspheme and we slander God's name when we declare with our words or our actions insurrectionist ideas about God. That there's anyone in the world for whom Christ did not die. Anyone in the world, any people group in the world that Jesus does not love just as much as he loves us. That That God isn't all that concerned about how we treat one another. That that God really doesn't place demands on our lives about obedience. God in Christ doesn't have the power to, to make us holy like Christ. It's a great warning here for all we who are insurrectionists. Perhaps our our nearness to Christ is is causing us to become stagnant. And out of our stagnation, we're misrepresenting Christ. With your words and your actions, is there anything in your life that you realize slandering God. Please join me in a moment of silent prayer. Let us join together in the prayer of confession and pardon as printed in your bulletin. Most merciful God, 
We confess that the temptation to sin continually batters the door of our hearts and minds and that too often we open the door. We acknowledge that we have sinned against you and others by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We admit that too often we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, so that we may delight in your will and follow in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. In response to God's grace in our lives, we now have opportunity to give of tithes and offerings to the ways in which God has blessed us. As the ushers come forward to assist us, please pray with me. In comparison to what we have, Lord, most of us have given very little. Remind us of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Give us a spirit of generosity toward you and others. We might more adequately represent your character. Your generous, loving, sacrificial character. Help us give today in the spirit in which you gave your son. Amen. There is a second insurrection that's crucified with Jesus. Matthew, Mark tell us that both criminals hurled insults at Jesus. Luke says that the first one hurled insults, but the second tried to stop him. It's a little difficult to reconcile those two accounts, but, but perhaps the second criminal starts out blaspheming Jesus hurling insults at Jesus. And then he sees something in Jesus that changes his perspective. Maybe it's Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them. Maybe it's Jesus' gentle spirit. Maybe it's the way in which Jesus willingly surrenders himself. We don't know exactly why, but something makes this criminal respond differently. And the criminal on the other side of Jesus. As the first criminal hurls his insults, the second one rebukes him. Verse 40 says, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns and asks, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In Hebrew thought, there is a connection between remembering and acting. Exodus tells us that God remembers Israel. And the next thing you know, Israel is leaving Egypt. When the psalmist is in turmoil and trouble, he wants to be relieved, he, he asks God to remember him. What he's really saying is, Lord, do something. And asking God to remember doesn't imply that God forgets. It's simply a way of of asking God to act on our behalf. It's not just the Hebrews that see this connection. The pagan people who live around Israel see it too. The difference is they believe that their God remembers when they go through the rituals that please and appease their gods. 
You have to jar their memory. You have to convince them that you are worthy of being remembered. Unfortunately, the Israelites fall into the same trap. The prophets condemn the people of Israel because they think of God in the same way. They've fallen into the trap of believing that God remembers because you go through the rituals of worship, prayer, sacrifice, good works, understanding the things of God just right. And only when all of that is lined up can you even begin to ask God to remember. Jesus says, God remembers you because he loves you. You don't have to shock God into action. The rituals don't change God's desires for you. God loves you. That's the very point of the cross. The unrepentant criminal sarcastic Remarks mock Jesus' inability to save himself. It's the taunt of the crowd. And it makes me wonder if it isn't the enemy's last-ditch effort to turn Jesus from his purpose and task. To to convince Jesus to, to show them what he really can do. And his humanness, you know, he has to want to do that. We would, wouldn't we? But it's his unwillingness to save himself that brings ultimate meaning to this entire event. It's because Jesus refuses to save himself, not can't, but won't save himself, that he becomes the savior of the world, just as he and the Father and the Spirit planned it from the foundation of the world. This is God's loving activity toward us. His remembering his love. And it's not God who needs to be awakened. It's you and me. The idea of remembering is central to the Lord's table. This table established by God is done so in order to help us remember that God has always remembered us. This table doesn't magically awaken God to action. This table stirs our hearts to faith and surrender because of what God has already done. And every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, our memories are jarred. Our memories are jarred to the price that God is willing to pay so that our eyes might be open to his grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. Criminals cry, remember me, save me. It's the evidence that his heart has been awakened. Now, does this this criminal understand the depth and meaning and power of God's kingdom? Probably not. Is his faith founded on a a full awareness of, of all that Jesus is? I doubt it. But he sees something in Jesus that stirs within him. And with all the limited faith he can muster, with what little he knows, he believes. And in response, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There's a lot of discussion about paradise. 
narrow it down to this. It is describing an existence of beauty and delight. But it's only beautiful and delightful because it's describing what it's like to be with Jesus. This promise that Jesus makes takes on significance and ultimate meaning because he says, today you will be with me. And being with Jesus is what changes all of this. There's a great promise here for all who are afraid that God might not accept them. He does. No matter what we've done, God makes the same promise to us. If we believe, if we open our hearts, we respond to him positively, we have grace. The very existence of the cross is a beacon that insurrectionists need saving, that revolutionaries and blasphemers and slanderers need saving. And Jesus hangs on the cross to do just that. It's a theme in Luke's gospel, really throughout all the gospels, that while the most likely religious people are blind to who Jesus is and deaf to what Jesus teaches and insensitive to what Jesus does, the most unlikely, irreligious people like a criminal hanging on a cross understand who Jesus is. Soak up what Jesus says Radiate with joy at what Jesus does. It's not an accident that Jesus is crucified with two insurrectionists, revolutionaries. Jesus is a revolutionary. He doesn't fight with violence. His strategy isn't about worldly power. He fights with love. His strategy is eternal surrender of even his very life. And he calls us that same faithful surrender. In one form or another, we're all insurrectionists against God. But this is why Jesus comes and dies. So that we might remember his love and surrender ourselves in faith and find in him the gracious beauty of his presence. So as you think about these two criminals, which one do you more resemble? Which one do you hope to be like? Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the cross and the clear message that you send to us in it. Make us people who desire what you desire. Give us, Father, faith wherever we are on on our spiritual journey with you. Give us grace to respond in faith. Father, we remember the night when Jesus met with his disciples. 
And on that night, he took bread and he gave thanks to you and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to you and he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Father, we pray that you will pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, we may know the power of Christ in our lives. And we might be unified through your Spirit. We might be filled with a deeper level of faith and surrender in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.